You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We are a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. Go ahead and move right into the agenda this morning. We've been doing a series on becoming a more inclusive congregation and dealing with sexuality in the Bible and even though we haven't just talked about homosexuality, one of the main discussions is clobber passages that have been used to exclude mostly homosexuals. And so that's been the conversation. And since most congregations have never actually done that work, we decided to take the time this summer to go through that. So today, it's our last time. And I thought about going through and doing a review of the stuff that we've learned, but I think it's more important for us to really dig into this one. And then maybe next week we can have some time for review. But our last two passages are from 1 Corinthians and from 1 Timothy. So I'm going to read 1 Timothy first, and then I'll read 1 Corinthians. So this is, and they're just short passages. So we're not going to get a whole long passage, so hopefully you, you'll uh, take some time on your own to review and maybe read these, story, read these letters and get a sense of, of the context for yourself. But this is 1 Timothy 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else in the contrary is contrary to sound teaching. So that's 1 Timothy. Here is 1 Corinthians. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkard, revelers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So generally, I always end with a phrase that says, this is the word of God for the people of God. And so I think that it's, I think, I think partly we're asking that question. What does it mean for passages like this to be the word of God for us? Or how does even the word of God work? Um, So just take a minute. And if you'll join me in a short prayer. Gracious God, as we enter into this text, we pray that you help it and help us to read it in a way that helps us know what it means to be the beloved community together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when you hear the phrase, enter the kingdom of God, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Well, from the way it's portrayed in popular Christianity, many of us probably think of stories about pearly gates. Stories like the one, I'm going to tell you one real here real quick, uh, so you can guess this is probably a joke, right? I'm not that great of a com- comedian or a storyteller, a, a joke teller, but I'm going to try. So a young couple was tragically killed in an accident on the day before their wedding. And when they arrived at the pearly gates, St. Peter asked if there was anything that he could do to make heaven more pleasant for them. And so they explained to Peter about dying the day before their wedding, and they asked if it was possible if they could get married in heaven. Well, no problem, Peter said. Yeah, just leave it to me. We could do that. Well, some time passed. Actually, it was 100 years or so. And they met St. Peter again, and they asked him about the wedding. Yeah, everything has been prepared, Peter said. I assure you, it's going to happen. Well, then another 100 years passed. 
They decided to go and find Peter. Guess where he was? At the gate, right? So where Peter always is. So they go to the pearly gates and they reminded him about the wedding. We know that in heaven, times of no consequence, but you know, Peter, we've been waiting for over 200 years to get married. Well, Peter replied, I'm sorry. You know, all the arrangements were made the day after you arrived. There's just one problem. There's something preventing us from having a wedding. Well, what is that? The couple ask. And Peter says, well, there aren't any ministers here. <laughs> so, um, you know, the question always comes up in religious spaces. How do we enter the kingdom of God? Well, people want to be sure that they have a place with God. And based on your theology or which church that you decide to attend, there can be numerous answers to this question. There are several different answers, and here are some of them that you might get. You need to join the right church. You need to worship the right deity. You need to believe the right doctrines. You need to say the right prayers. Or you need to live the right kind of life. But even then, sometimes it feels hard to be sure. There's always this arbitrary list that somehow or another sneaks up on you that has this list of traits or behaviors that might prevent you from entering the kingdom. Shake your head if that sounds normal to you. Does that sound right? Yeah. It's as if on the day that we arrive, we'll have to be in a line where we meet St. Peter at the gate of the kingdom and we'll have to wade through these bureaucratic lines where we'll be forced to submit to some administrative protocol. So I imagine it's like going through border security at the airport. Now, I pray that it's that efficient because... If it's anything like the New Jersey Motor Vehicle Commission, we're in trouble. I mean, you've been there, right? So you just imagine being there and people frantically looking to see if they can find those six points of identification so they can verify who they are. So imagine if you're there at the pearly gates and you're looking it's like, okay, can you, are you a card-carrying member of the right church? Uh, can you prove regular attendance and participation in church activities? Do you know the right answers to all those important questions? Did you say that one magical prayer in exactly the right way to make sure that you have everything right? And then there's that moment. Oh, wait. You're not. Oh, sorry. We have strict instructions not to let people like you in. And today we've arrived at our final two clobber passages. <coughs> And like all the other clobber passages that we've read in this series, these two passages ex exist within a context. And if you notice, when I read them, I didn't cover the context at all. You should always be nervous when pastors use certain sentences or phrases or verses from the Bible without at all going through the context with you. So today I'm going to focus mostly on 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, because it's one of the clobber passages. But the language is almost the same in 1 Timothy. Didn't they sound like echoes of each other? In the context of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, we have the story of perceived sexual misconduct within the community. And there's even been bragging about it if you read 1 Corinthians 5 and then 6. So this brings Paul's most severe criticism. He doesn't just reprimand the wrongdoer. He actually rebukes the entire community for it. And then Paul asks the rhetorical question that was at the beginning of our reading this morning. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
the kingdom of God. This kingdom, Paul says, is something that will be inherited. It's like um, that, you know, as long as you're not a wrongdoer, right? That seems to be Paul's litmus test about whether you can enter. If you're not a wrongdoer, so how do we make sure we're not wrongdoers? How do we make sure that we can enter the kingdom? I think that's the fundamental question at the heart of Christianity. It's one that we should probably ask regularly to make sure that we ourselves understand it, to make sure that we ourselves understand what we're talking about. This is the kind of question that reminds us of the importance of what we're doing. It reminds us of what our goals are, what our values are, what kind of people we want to be. This is the reminder question for us. How do we enter the kingdom of God? And so while our task today is to deal with this clobber passage that has this list of things in it, I think the fundamental question, the deeper question, the question that's at the heart of Paul's teaching here, the more fundamental question is, how do we enter the kingdom? That's the question we should be asking. So like Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, it includes this list of exclusive standards that seem surely to be used to determine who can and cannot walk through the pearly gates. So we should look closely at this list regardless of what our opinion is about it. There is a specific question, though, that we're asking this morning, we've been asking throughout this series, how do we be an inclusive community? And how do we become an inclusive, beloved community if we still have lists like this of exclusive requirements that tell you who can and cannot enter? How do you become an inclusive community when you have a list that is used to exclude people, regardless of whether we think it's a good list or not? The problem, I believe, is in how we understand what it means to enter. I think that's the problem. How do you enter the kingdom? Should we really imagine the kingdom of God like a modern nation state, exclusive and territorial with a regime that proves its greatness by exercising strong border security? Should we imagine St. Peter as a security guard standing at the border at the gates deciding who can and cannot enter? Right? Paul, the TSA agent. I don't think that's the right image at all. I don't, I don't think that that's what we get from the teachings of Jesus. I don't think that that's if we really dig spiritually and wrestle in prayer with God. Is that, is that what we imagine the kingdom of God to be like? As you've come to realize, I'm not really fond of the language of kingdom anyway. I think the language misses the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus must have meant when he used the phrase, the basileia of God. So in the past, I've challenged us instead to come up with other language, to think about what we understand that phrase to mean and to see if we can come up with language that fits it rather than to use these territorial exclusive language. So one phrase by someone named Maria Sassi-Dias, you've heard me say, kingdom. So you remove the G, right? And you think of all of us are related and our relationships are sacred. Another way is to borrow from Martin Luther King Jr. who called it the beloved community. And so we've gone through different teachings and thinking about what it means to be a beloved community. So rather than interpreting Paul as talking about a checklist that's needed to enter through the pearly gates, I hear Paul reminding the church of the kind of community God is calling them to become together. In other words, this question's not about who can and cannot enter, but about the kind of people God's calling us to become together. If you think about it, 
What would be some defining marks of such a community? What would a beloved community look like? If we were able to actually see it and see it lived out, what are some of the characteristics that we would use to describe it? What are some things that we would expect such a community to have? Or, negatively, what are some characteristics that you would expect not to find? I think that's the work that Paul's doing here. But depending on which version of the New Testament that you use, when you read the list in 1 Corinthians 6 in English, you might actually find the word homosexual or homosexuality used as exclusive characteristics here. They're on that list. And this is exactly the case that you'll find in the English Standard Version. In the New International Version, the NIV, which is the most popular Bible in America, the passage reads this way, sex with other men. Of course, you don't know whether you're a woman or a man reading the text, right? But both of these versions are, are actually what they're doing is they're merging two concepts, two terms together in one. The New Revised Standard Version, which is the more widely uh, version used among academics, that's the version that I generally read here, it does a relatively better job. I didn't say the best job, but relatively better job, and it uses two terms, male prostitutes and sodomites. Well, if you look at these two words in the original Greek, you'll find that the first word, malakoi, actually means soft. And the second word, arsenikotai, it means man-bed. So soft is supposed to be related to male prostitution, and man-bed somehow or another equates with sodomite. Of course, no one wants to say that God excludes you for having soft skin or being effeminate which is how some versions translated. And if many of you are like me in school, you saw what that looked like lived out in public, right? Is that, is that what the Bible is telling us? And of course, you probably also realize this passage doesn't have any reference to the ancient city in Sodom. And so whoever the writers were in early English language that decided to use this word, sodomy and sodomite has nothing to do with this. So what actually is going on here? That's the question. Well, first off, the term homosexual and homosexuality didn't exist at the time when the letter was written. So the use of it in passages of Scripture, anytime you see it, it should call your whole, uh, your, your whole interpretation of the rest of that version of the Bible in question. You should say, ah, whoever's writing this has an agenda. Homosexual, uh, homosexual and homosexuality, uh, those terms were, weren't intended by Paul or written by any of the New Testament writers. It's a modern terminology. Homosexual and heterosexual, those were inventions in the late 19th century. The word homosexual was actually invented during the time of the unification of Germany in 1860 by a man named Karl Kurtben. He was advocating for gay rights and suggesting that as Germany was uniting, this would be something that they would include as an understanding of who they are. In other words, the concept homosexual was actually invented by someone seeking equal rights for the protection of sexual minorities. And afterward, we find the shift in Western societies where sexuality, which had never been talked about before, begins to be talked about in psychological and, and physiological terms. We developed a language that's about more than just sex acts, and we can begin to actually come up with a language to describe the self and its relationship to the world and how sex plays a part of that. So the word arsenicotai, it's especially interesting. The other word soft is not so much interesting. 
I think it's pretty clear what that means. But arsenicotai is interesting. It's, it's invented by Paul, probably, as a compilation of two words. So then now we have three words. There's arsenicotai and malachi, and arsenicotai is two words pun together. But after Paul, so you don't have any of this word used anywhere before Paul, but after Paul, when it's used, it's used in conversations or discussions about the relationship between sex and power and exploitation. So in one sense, the word, when it's used in other contexts, it makes the argument that we should never use our bodies to manipulate others. And in another sense, we should never misuse others' bodies, even if they allow it. So rather than seeing these passages as an argument against homosexuality, or even rules about which traits to exclude that exclude people from the kingdom, I see them as standards about the kind of people that we are, how we treat each other, what kind of expectations that we have for each other? What kind of things that we allow others to go through for our benefit? So in short, I don't believe that the most faithful way to follow Jesus is to create a list of things that keep people from the kingdom. Instead, I believe that the truth at the heart of the gospel here is found in the question that Paul really must have been leading the church of Corinth to ask. Or at least if this was what, not what he was asking, he should have been asking. How do we become the beloved community together? How do we become faithful followers of Jesus and become a community that embodies that together? So let me be crystal clear. I do think that this has something to do with our understanding of sexuality in the body. Reframing the language of Paul in our own context, I think that we might hear Paul ask that rhetorical question this way. Do you not know that you can't believe, be the beloved community together if you don't have relationships built on mutual trust? and on honesty, and on shared vulnerability? If there is a list that we need, it's only going to be important if it helps us see a vision for who we can be together. Building the beloved community is about becoming a community where everyone's belovedness is recognized, emphasized, never compromised. It's a place where our bodies are seen as sacred gifts from God. And from this perspective, even legally married relationships that lack love and mutual respect and freedom create spaces of domination rather than mutual vulnerability. This is what it looks like to live in sin. Right? Do I need to say that passage again? Yeah. From this perspective, even legally married relationships that lack love and mutual respect and freedom they create spaces of domination rather than mutual vulnerability, and this is what it looks like to live in sin. Unfortunately, this has not been what Christianity has taught us. Christianity has historically taught that the body is bad and needs to be conquered. It's taught that women's bodies exist for the sake of others, especially men. And if anything, I think undoing sexually oppressive tendencies is at the heart of what Jesus was teaching I think it's this that Paul must have been getting at in his argument. Or if it's not, it should have been. It's about creating a community where we can learn to be together what the whole world needs to be together. Paul says in other ways, the world is watching us, he says. And our relationship with each other should model then what it means to be a community that knows what Jesus' teachings were all about. A community that recognizes each other's belovedness, especially when it comes to the times and the spaces where we're most vulnerable and intimate together. So in the words of the ethicist Miguel de la Torre, 
By providing an ethical pattern for our private and most intimate human relationships, we're making attempts to remedy public injustices. That means we expect our most treasured relationships to be safe and consensual and faithful and mutually pleasing and intimate. And these intimate spaces, they become places of power sharing, of mutual care, of examples of what healthy self-expression can look like when we act out of love for each other rather than domination. So from the perspective of the beloved community, our goal is not so much to define the type of relationships where sexual intimacy can occur, but it's to establish principles of justice within all our relationships, especially those that are the most private and intimate, the ones where we're vulnerable with each other. So in conclusion, rather than discovering a list of characteristics that exclude us from entering the pearly gates, I think what we, profound is a more, what we find is a more profound question. How do we build a radically inclusive community where everyone's worth and dignity is valued all of the time, even in private? And rather than deny this, that this has anything to do with sexuality, I think we're being challenged to explore the role that our most private and intimate relationships play in shaping the kind of people God's calling us to be together. So here's my prayer for us. I pray that we learn to talk more freely and openly and regularly about what healthy sexual interactions look like. I pray that we seek ways to have the conversations that we really need to have, not just us at Brookside, but all of our society. I pray that we begin doing the work that every family and every community needs to do, and if we don't know how to do that, we search out the resources, maybe develop them ourselves, and then teach each other how to do it. And I pray that we can learn to be clear with each other about what loving relationships should look like, about what to expect in our relationships with each other. And I pray that in every relationship we're in and in every aspect of every relationship that we're in, that we're able to model what the beloved community looks like. Again, to rephrase Paul, do you not know what it looks like to be the beloved community? My challenge is that we can move closer to that together. In Jesus' name, amen.